Let's turn back over to Hebrews chapter 10. For those of you who were not here last night, I started teaching from the book of Hebrews. And to me, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 23 or 24 are kind of like a summary of the things that he's teaching. So we started with these verses and then we went back and started dealing with a lot of other things. So again, I want to go back and just talk about this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Man, those are powerful scriptures. If we could get just those th- uh, four scriptures... And if we could understand that and just milk that for all of the truth and the revelation that's in it, I guarantee you it would solve your problems. I really believe that. You know, lots of times preachers overstate things in an effort to try and get a point across and trying to motivate people, but I don't believe that that is an overstatement at all. I believe that if we had full revelation of what this is talking about, that, man, this would so revolutionize your life that you would be on top, you would just see supernatural miracles operate in your life. I really believe that. And like I said last night and even this morning earlier, I said Mark seven thirteen says the traditions and doctrines of men make the word of God of none effect. And so we've heard some of this terminology, but we really don't appreciate and get the full benefit of it because we have limited and uh, negated the word of God through our religious tradition. So, I'm taking these verses and we're just going back and breaking them down and basically doing a little mini-study in the book of Hebrews to go back and understand what this is truly talking about. And I tell you, it'll transform your life if you get the full revelation. So last night we talked about verse 19, that we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And I emphasize that most people do not have boldness. That word was also translated confidence right here in this chapter, verse 35, and in 1 John chapter 3 and other places, the word, the exact same Greek word was translated confidence. Most of us don't have confidence. We have a lack of confidence in our relationship with God because of a sin consciousness. We have been taught that our sins separate us from God. You know, there may be somebody who's familiar enough with the scripture that right now you have come to mind, Isaiah chapter 59, where it says, My hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and God. And there's other scriptures that say similar things. And people say, well, now that scripture says our sins have separated us from God. That's true, but that's an Old Testament scripture. And through Jesus, that separation has now been done away with. And sin is not separating you from God if you are a born-again Christian. And if you feel that it is, if you feel that every time you sin that God withdraws from you, whether it's total or whether it's partial, He just won't answer your prayer. He won't fellowship with you if there's any sin in your life. If you believe that, then you are putting the veil back 
and separating yourself from the very presence of God and uh, having to have the blood of Jesus reapplied. This is a terminology that is often used in the body of Christ, that you have to get that sin under the blood. I'm going to deal with this in more detail uh, either tonight or tomorrow, but I'll show you that your sin, all of it, has been atoned for, past, present, and even future sin. Jesus dealt with all of your sin at one time. Sin is wiped out. Sin is not an issue between you and God if you're born again. Now, if you aren't born again, you've got to accept the payment for that sin. But once you accept it, you have become a new person and sin no longer separates you from God. And because of that, you can have boldness to enter into the very holy of holies, the place where God dwelt, through the blood of Jesus, not through your own performance, not because you've done everything right. That's what we were talking about last night. And I tell you, that is awesome. That is wonderful. If you've got a full revelation of that, and in your relationship with God, just started entering in and praising God for what you've already had instead of begging Him to do something, started praising Him for what He's already done and started taking full advantage of it, I guarantee you, your life would transform. Your joy level would go through the roof. The Bible says faith works by love. You would know that God loves you so much that faith would cease to be an issue. People that are struggling on believing God are people that are struggling on believing how much God loves you because faith works by love, Galatians 5, 6. If your faith isn't working, you don't understand how much God loves you. You still think He's imputing sin unto you. I tell you, this is just powerful. It'll transform your life. And in verse 20... It says that we enter in by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. Man, that's awesome. You know, let me just point out this. That when He says that there is a new way of entering in unto God, then that means that the old way is no longer valid. That is so simple. You've got to have somebody to help you to misunderstand that. And yet, I can guarantee you that the average Christian is trying to mix the Old Testament way of relating to God with the New Testament way, and it doesn't work. The old way is out. The new way is in. Now, this doesn't mean that you throw away the Old Covenant because there's tremendous benefit. I spend a lot of time studying the Old Testament but you have to read it in light of the new covenant. You have to read it and what the old covenant basically was doing was showing you, it was showing people how deadly sin was and how sin had separated them from God and it made sin come alive is what the scripture says. It made sin come alive. Romans chapter 7, I was alive without the law once but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The commandment made sin come alive on the inside of you. It, made, it, it strengthened sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says the strength of sin is the law. The law wasn't given to break the dominion of sin, but rather it was given to cause sin to dominate you and destroy you. And some people struggle with this thinking, well, why would God give something like that? Because the truth is sin had already beat you. But people made the mistake that is recorded over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where it says they comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. Most of us 
We know that we haven't lived correctly, but you know what the average person does? They compare themselves with other people and they say, well, at least I hadn't murdered like this person did and I haven't committed adultery like this person has. I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do and so relatively, I'm holy and therefore, I believe God is going to accept me. You may not have said it that boldly or that openly so that it's obvious, but this is what most people do. They compare themselves. And they think, well, I'm okay. I'm not the best, but I'm not the worst. I believe God's going to accept me. Well, the Bible teaches in James chapter 2, verse 10, that if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of everything. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't just take the top 10% and pass you regardless of what your grade was. No, if you aren't perfect, if you aren't absolutely perfect, you fail. And you need a Savior. So you have to come to the end of trusting in your own goodness and in your own holiness. How did God bring you to the end of yourself? He gave a law that was so high, that was so holy, that was so pure, nobody could measure up to it. And the purpose of the law wasn't to give you step one through 10,000, what you had to do to get right with God. It was to make you despair of self-righteousness so that you'd say, Oh God, if you demand all of this... I could never live up to that. Oh, God, have mercy on me. And that's what God was trying to do, is drive you to the end of yourself. You know, I heard a joke about a guy that died and went to heaven, and he met, you know, Peter at the pearly gates, and Peter said, uh, you know, before you can enter, we gotta, we got to grade you on how well you did, and you've got to have 100 points to be able to get into heaven. And so this guy said, oh, no problem, man. I've served God my whole life. He says, I believe I can come up with 100 points. And so Peter says, all right, so uh, tell me what good things you've done. And this guy said, well, I was faithful to my wife. I never cheated on my wife in 40 years of marriage. And he says, okay, that's one point. (laughs) And he says, one point? And he says, well, I attended church every time the doors were open. And he says, that's half a point. And he said, well, I, I gave, I tithed. And he says, that's half a point. And, and he just started listing things. Finally, he had about four or five points. And he says, man, if it takes a hundred points, he says, God, have mercy on me. The only way I'll ever get in is by the mercy of God. And Peter goes, bingo, amen. <laughs> Welcome in. See, what the law was to do was to raise the standard and make it so holy that you just came to the place, oh God, if you demand all of this, the only way I'll ever make it is by the grace of God. And he says, welcome in. It was to drive you to grace. And yet most people don't understand that. And most people are preaching, no, you got to be holy or God won't bless you. And they just are condemning people and basically trying to make you earn God's favor by your performance. That was the old covenant way and it was given to show you that you could never measure up. There is a new covenant way now that it's you enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus through this new and living way. Living as contrasted to death. The Old Testament law, legalism, trying to perform and earn God's favor is death. It kills you. Thank you for both of those, that's right. 
Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me give you some scriptures on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in verse 6, I wish they had time to put all of this in its context because these are powerful passages. In verse uh, 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills But the Spirit gives life. Notice that the letter, talking about the Old Testament law, kills. But the Spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death, this is referring to the Old Testament law, the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones. What's that talking about? The Ten Commandments, where God wrote the Ten Commandments with His own finger on the stones. It calls it, the New Testament, the Bible calls the law death. I know some of you don't like this. But I'm reading scripture to you. The ministration of death. Are you saying that the law is sin? No, the Bible says in Romans chapter 7, Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known that you weren't supposed to covet if the law hadn't said thou shalt not covet. So Paul's saying that he wasn't against the law. I'm not against the law. The law had a purpose. The law was to bring a self-righteous person to their knees so that you would recognize God's demands are higher than what you can meet. But the ultimate purpose of the law wasn't to give you life. It was to give you death. It was to condemn you. It was to defeat you. It was to bring you to your knees, to the end of yourself. It wasn't life-giving. It was death-giving. It brought condemnation. The purpose of the law was to condemn you. It's going to say that right here in these verses. And so I'm not against the law. If you use the law for what it was intended for, the law is a good thing. You know, I had an instance in one of my services. I was in Houston, Texas. There's about 300 people in a holiday inn. And I was preaching and a guy came in, stood at the back for a while. And eventually he interrupted me and started yelling at me while I was preaching and the guy was drunk or either high on dope. I don't know which it was, but he was out of it. He wasn't all there. And I tried to talk to him and he wouldn't listen. And so I just took authority over him and commanded him to shut up and sit down in the name of Jesus. And he just plopped right down in the chair. And I went ahead and finished the service. And after the service was over, he came down front and I started talking to him. And I started telling him about the goodness of God. I said, God loves you. God wants to set you free. God can change your life. And I told him about the goodness of God. But this guy was so out of it. He was so into new age, or I'm not sure exactly what he was into, but he started saying, I'm God. We're all God. God is in the ceiling. God is in the floor. And I don't know what he was into, but it was weird. And I knew he wasn't God. And so you know what I did? The Bible says, let me keep your finger in 2 Corinthians. I'm coming back to that. But look over in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I believe it is. In verse 6 it says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. There is a right use for the law. What is the use of the law? Again, I could teach on this in more detail, but it's to condemn. It's to kill It's to bring you to the end of yourself. It's to bring you out of self-righteousness and show you that you need a Savior. The purpose of the law is to beat you up 
so that you'll quit trusting in yourself and to bring you to the end of yourself. It says, we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Who's righteous? Any person that has been born again, you have been made the righteousness of God. The law is not for a New Testament believer. It's before. It's for a person before they get born again to show them that you can't trust in your own goodness. You need a Savior because you'll never match up to this standard. So the law is meant to bring you to a place of acknowledging Jesus as your Savior. But once you come to Jesus and you're made righteous, the law isn't for you anymore. So this man who was saying he was God, I changed my approach. And instead of telling him God loves you and God can provide something, I started saying, you think you're God? You are a stink in the nostrils of God. And I started using scripture like a club. And I started beating this guy up and saying, man, you are arrogant. And I use scriptures about pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I took the word of God and just beat this guy to a pulp. And within minutes, this guy who had just moments before been saying that he was God was sitting there crying saying, oh God, have mercy on me. That's the purpose of the law. The law is for self-righteous people to bring you to the end of thinking that you could ever be good enough. How arrogant a person is to think that there's something you can do that would put you into God's class and make you worthy of God using you. The only thing that we ever have that allowed us to enter into the holiest is the blood of Jesus. It's what Jesus did for us, not what you do for God. That's the purpose of the law. Amen? And so, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, it says, The ministration of death, written and engraven in stones. That's talking about the Ten Commandments. It's calling it death. In the New Testament, life is consistent with Jesus. Satan comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. John chapter 10, verse 10. In John chapter 1, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Life is associated with God. Death is associated with the devil. And yet, the law is administration of death, written and engraven in stones. You know, every time I teach on this, there are some people that are just so overwhelmed and they say, you can't be saying that the Old Testament law should be passed away. We shouldn't be living under it. And in an attempt to salvage the Old Testament law, they'll come back and say, well, the ceremonial law has been done away with. In other words, we don't observe the feast days and the dietary laws and we don't any longer, uh, you know, keep uh, Yom Kippur and all of these kind of things. But you still have to keep the, the basic law, the Ten Commandments. Look at this verse again. The ministration of death written and engraven in stones. That is not talking about the ceremonial law. That is talking about the Ten Commandments. calls it administration of death. And it says, If that was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory, which was to be done away. I mean, if words mean anything, this is talking about the Ten Commandments. They were death. They served a purpose to bring you to the end of yourself but they weren't made for the righteous 
and it has passed away. It is to be done away. In verse 8, it says, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Verse 9, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory. Again, talking about the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law's purpose was to condemn you, to make you feel guilty. It's where your condemnation comes from, is this standard of right and wrong. And if you've really studied the Old Testament, it not only says what's right and wrong, but it prescribes a punishment for every time you miss it. And the punishment is death. And the only way that you could escape it in the Old Testament is to come and bring a sacrifice and trust in the sacrifice. Nobody ever kept the law. Nobody ever earned favor with God. The law was to drive you to the end of self-righteousness and make you offer a sacrifice which was only a picture and a shadow of the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus that was to come. So the Old Testament pictures and shadows had to be repeated over and over, but a point that was made, I talked about it last night, I'm going to make it even more tonight or tomorrow whenever I cover it. It will talk about how that Jesus once for all dealt with your sins. It doesn't have to be redone over and over and over. The sin barrier, the separation, the veil has been split between us and God and we now have access to enter, boldness to enter into the holiest. Man, what a tremendous statement. So in verse 9, For if the ministration of condemnation, talking about the Old Testament law, specifically the Ten Commandments, if that was be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that, the Old Testament law, uh, was for even that which was made glorious, talking about the Old Testament law, had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. In other words, compared to what you and I have provided for us, the Old Testament law and the Old Testament way of relating unto God doesn't even have anything good in it compared to how good ours covenant is. The Old Testament figures, it says over in um, one of the books of Peter, I think it's Second Peter chapter 1, he says that these prophets and holy men longed and searched and inquired diligently what manner of time the prophecies were talking about. They longed for what you and I have. Abraham, Moses, David, all of these people would have given anything to have what you and I have. Jesus even said this in Matthew chapter 11, I believe it's verse 11 or 12. He said, among them that is born of women, there hath never risen a greater than John the Baptist. That means John the Baptist was greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Abraham, greater than David, greater than anybody, and yet it goes on to say, nevertheless, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist wasn't a New Testament saint. He was before the new covenant was put into effect. He was the greatest person that ever lived under the old covenant, and yet if you are the sorriest saint in this room, if you are the least victorious Christian that has ever lived, you're greater than John the Baptist, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. What you have on the inside of you is greater than what any Old Testament person has ever had. Man, that's good news. And brothers and sisters, that's true. What's, that's what the Bible says. And yet, some of you sorry saints in here 
are depressed and discouraged and feeling like you're just missing out and always begging God for more and yet Moses would have given everything he had to have your sorry state. You know what that means? That means that most of us don't really know what we've got and aren't taking full advantage of what we've got. But according to Scripture, what you have is greater than what Moses had, Elijah, or any of these people. It's not that God hasn't done His part. It's that we are ignorant. We don't know what we've got. God's people are perishing for a lack of knowledge. That's what I'm trying to teach on. I know that this is more technical than what a lot of people want. You know, I've talked to two or three people this morning who were telling me that they used to pass me by on television and just pass by because I'm boring. <laughs> I'm just sitting there. I'm not screaming. I don't spit. I don't scream. I don't have a towel wiping my fevered brow. And they just said, you're boring. <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit made them stop and they got to listening and found out that the Word was setting them free. Most people, <laughs> Amen. Most people want to be entertained. I actually had a friend one time who got up and he, he realized that his church was just religious. That it wasn't, it wasn't godly, it was just religious. And so he was Pentecostal. He was United Pentecostals, what his church was. And he got up and he quoted, Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. He quoted that, but he did it in Pentecostal style. He got up shouting, Mary had a a little lamb. And boy, people started running and jumping and they were rolling on the floor. And they were, man, people were just on the floor shaking and bouncing. And he quoted, Mary had a little lamb. And when he got through, he says, you bunch of religious hypocrites. He says, I quoted a nursery rhyme and you are running the aisles. It's just religious. It's emotional. It's true. David and I were just at a church in South Africa. That it was, they prided themselves on being non-religious. They hated religion. But they were religious. They had a different style. It wasn't Pentecostal style. It was just a different style. And I mean, this guy, you had to talk to him. And are you listening? And and I mean, these people were just talking constantly and he was saying nothing and they were exciting and shouting and I was sitting there thinking, I I know I'm not an idiot. I know I'm thinking and yet this guy hadn't said anything and everybody's just shouting and running the aisles. And it was just a religious Most people are wanting to be entertained. So this may not be real entertaining to you, but it's the truth. And you need to hear the truth. It's the truth that's going to set you free. So in verse um, 11, it says, For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. If the Old Testament was great so that you could see the miracles that happened under the Old Covenant, how much greater is the New Covenant that we've got? In verse 12, Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is, glor- uh, which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil 
untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Boy, that is a mouthful. I wish I had time to preach on just... I'm really... This is not part of what I was wanting to say, but this is great. Wish I had time to explain that. But basically, it's just talking about that as long as a person is under the law, a legalist, thinking that they have to earn the favor of God by their performance, it blinds you from seeing the truth in the Word of God. Legalism makes you spiritually retarded. That's what it does. It just blinds you to the message of grace that is so prevalent in the Old Testament. And it says in verse 15, But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face talking about the veil being removed. Remember that the veil was Christ and the veil has been rent in two from the top to the bottom. Now we can go directly into the very presence of God. And when the veil is rent, when you understand that Jesus paid for it, it's by the blood of Jesus that you enter into the holiest. When that happens, when the veil, uh, we with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Most people interpret that, that we are changed from glory to glory in steps and in stages. I'm getting a little more glorious all of the time. What this is talking about is that we are changed from the Old Testament glory into the New Testament glory. It's not talking about a progressive step. You could use other scriptures to make that point and say that we do renew our mind and grow in the Lord. But this is talking about that we have moved from the glory of the Old Covenant into the glory of the New Covenant through Jesus, and the old covenant is gone, over, done with. It was a ministration of death, it says in verse 7. In verse 9, it calls the Old Testament a ministration of condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. We have been removed from condemnation. So all of this comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20 that we have a new and living way. Why would we want something old and dead and condemning? Well, the reason it was so hard for me to get free from it is because I was raised this way. And my mother and my father and my brother and my sister and all of my friends and everybody I loved and respected lived this way. And it was just so hard to break with tradition. But this is what the Bible is saying. We have a new and living way. Some of you are probably thinking, I'm taking this and making more out of it than what the Bible intends. But I tell you, this is consistent with the book of Hebrews. I wish I had time to teach the whole book. But this is the point. That he's, let, let me real quickly just go back and start making some of these points in the book of Hebrews. Turn back to the first chapter. The whole book of Hebrews is to transition you from the Old Testament way to the new way that came through Christ. It's to show the superiority of Christ and to move you away from Moses and the law and trying to earn the favor of God. 
into a, entering into the holy by the blood of Jesus through a new and living way that he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. So it starts off in Hebrews chapter 1 by saying, God who at sundry times and in divers manners, that just means different times and in different ways, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And he begins to start talking about how that Jesus is superior to every other way that God ever communicated. The Old Testament law was given by angels. There were angels that were involved with Moses. The Lord said, I'll send an angel before you and I'll prepare the way. And angels were directly involved. And the Old Testament law was communicated by angels. And so the first chapter is showing that Jesus is far, far, far superior to the angels. Uh, again, I'm just going to have to skim through this, but then look in verse 4. It says, "...he being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee." That was a quotation from Psalms chapter 2, verse 7. Psalms 2, 7 says... Uh, I have sworn and will not repent. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And then Paul quoted that in Acts chapter 13 and in verse 33. And he said this scripture was fulfilled when Jesus was raised from the dead. So it wasn't talking about the birth of Jesus uh, through Mary. It was talking about his rebirth when he got born again from the dead. That's what that verse is referring to. And, and Paul revealed that in Acts 13:33. So this is what it's referring to, that Jesus was called his son and he has an inheritance that's greater than any angel because he's a son. He's not a created being. He was the son. And then in verse, uh, in verse 8 it says, but unto, which, but unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. That's a quotation from Psalms chapter 45 and verse 6. And over there it says, God said, thy throne, O God. Boy, there is so much in these verses. I don't want to get bogged down and so that I don't make my deal. But boy, that is awesome. If any of you have ever wondered about, you know, there's some people that challenge Jesus and say, well, he was a great man, but he wasn't God. This right here is an Old Testament scripture where God said, Thy throne, O God, is forever. God called Jesus God. I don't know how you get away from that. This is quite a statement about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. In verse 8, it was quoting, and God said, Thy throne, O God. God called the person that he was speaking about, Jesus, God. And then in verse 9, it says, Therefore God, even thy God. So God called God, God. You know what? You have to be just pretty set in your ways and close your eyes and bury your head in the sand to miss that Jesus was God. Amen. This is just pretty clear. And so he said, uh, 
You've hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above all thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. You put that together with Colossians chapter 1, where it says, Everything was created by Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. And here it's saying that God did it. Again, it's another reference to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 11, They shall perish, talking about all of creation, but thou remainest. They shall wax old as doth the garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. They shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years fail not. But to which of the angels said he in any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's a quotation from Psalms chapter 110 and verse 1. All of these things are scriptures that are prophesying that Jesus is far superior to the angels. And that's the point that he's making. So it goes into chapter 2 and says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels, talking about the Old Testament law, was steadfast and every transgression... And disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken unto us by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? See, the point that he's making, the first chapter is Jesus is superior to the angels, so therefore the covenant that He brought is superior to the covenant that angels brought. This is what Hebrews is doing. He's trying to come against the legalistic mentality, the people that were stuck under the Old Testament law and thought that you had to perform and live holy in order to be accepted with God. The writer of Hebrews is out to destroy that and he starts off by saying, Jesus is superior to any angel, so therefore his covenant supersedes the covenant that angels brought in. And that's the point that he's making. And he goes on and just continues to say this over and over and over. Matter of fact, he, he starts quoting from Psalms chapter 8. And he quotes the verses there when, that says, When I consider the sun, the moon, the stars, and the works of thy hand, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you have visited him? You made him a little lower than the angels. That's the way it's translated in the King James. If you look that word up, the word is Elohim. This is... Psalms chapter 82, verse 5. The word Elohim is the word for God. The word literally says, you made man a little lower than God. In other words, above angels. A little lower than God. And he goes on here in Hebrews and he says, well, we don't see man at this point functioning in that kind of anointing. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels again, talking about Elohim. And it's talking about that Jesus became a man. Like down here in verse uh, 12, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus became a man so that he could redeem us, and that's what it's talking about. Jesus is superior to the angels, and when he became a man, he did it so that he could redeem us. Then in chapter 3, now this is radical. This is just, and again, you've got to get in the mindset of the legalistic Jew of Paul's day, who believed that the law was it. 
And any statement against the law, you could be stoned to death. They were committed to the law. They measured how many steps they could walk on the Sabbath day. Did you know the people called the Essens, the people that raised John the Baptist, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever heard of them, and hid them around the Dead Sea, this group was so legalistic And some of you are going to think I'm making this up, but I've read this studying about the Dead Sea Scrolls. These people who copied out the Dead Sea Scrolls, these legalistic people that lived during the time of Jesus, thought that it was a violation of the Sabbath to have a bowel movement on the Sabbath. And they would not allow you to have a bowel movement on the Sabbath. It was punishable by death. It resembled work. That's how legalistic these people were. Man, the law was everything to them. And so here's what the, here's what the writer of Hebrews begins to say in chapter 3. He says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Again, this is something that we just pass over and don't think much about it. But to, for the legalistic person to say, Jesus was a high priest, was blasphemy. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't qualified. This was sacrilege. This was terrible. The writer of Hebrews is saying things that I guarantee you during his day and time, this is the reason that they killed Christians. Radical statement. He's calling Jesus the high priest and apostle of our confession. And it says in verse 2, "...who was faithful unto him that appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house." So he starts comparing Jesus to Moses. Now that would be offensive to a legalistic Jew who put Moses as the primo person who had ever represented God. But then look in the next verse. It says, For this man, speaking of Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. So he said Jesus is superior to the Old Testament law because the law was given by angels and Jesus is greater than any angel. That's a point that he had made in the first two chapters. Now he's saying Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is so much better than Moses that in comparison, Moses shouldn't even be honored or respected at all compared to how much glory should go to Jesus. Oh man, the legalistic Jew of this day was just upset to the max, ready to kill this person. And he goes on and starts talking about how that Jesus is greater than Moses. Man, there's not many people today who... And, and this isn't just talking about Jesus and Moses, but what they, the covenant that they brought in. The covenant of Jesus is superior to the covenant of Moses. And if you try and honor both of them the same... That would be like trying to put Jesus and Moses in the same category. Jesus is the one who created Moses. Jesus is God. Jesus was Moses' Lord. It says that Moses saw the day of Jesus and rejoiced and was glad. The gospel was preached unto Moses. Moses even prophesied that God's going to raise you up a prophet who will be like unto me and him you will hear. And you won't have to say who will ascend into heaven so that we can reach up to heaven or who will ascend into the deep. But the word will be nigh you in your heart and in your mouth. And Paul quoted from that in Romans chapter 10 and said, that's the word of faith which we preach. 
Moses was inferior to Jesus. I think most of us would agree with that, but most Christians would say that his covenant isn't inferior to the new covenant. But it is. That's what this is talking about. There is a new and living way versus an old and dead way. And I know some of you don't like that, but I got a lot more to say. It's going to get worse. So chapter 4 is a... I just taught on chapter 4 in South Africa. It was great, but I'm going to skip over that. I'll come back to that later. In chapter 5, he picks up on this thought again that Jesus is now a high priest, which was very offensive to the people because the high priest had to come out of the tribe of Levi. And he ends up the fifth chapter and starts to say some things. And he says, there's a lot I want to say about Jesus being the high priest, but you're so dull of hearing. You're so hard-hearted, I can't say it. And so he takes chapter 6 and rebukes them. And chapter 6 is a rebuke about, man, grow up. Get on to some of the more important things. And then in chapter 7, he picks this up again about Jesus being a high priest and, and the legalistic Jew. Most of us aren't really into this, so some of you may not get the significance of it, but the, there was very strict restrictions on who could be a high priest. They had to be a Levite. They had to be specifically of the family of Aaron. And so there was very, very strict guidelines on who could be a high priest. Nobody just volunteered. You didn't apply. You had to basically be picked and groomed for it and birthed into this. And Jesus came from a different tribe, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of David. And so he was disqualified. The legalistic Jew would have rejected Jesus. And so he starts quoting from Psalms 110 verse 5 that talks about God swore through David that there would be a new priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a person who is revealed in Genesis chapter 14. And anyway, I'm not going to get into this. this. I know that this is Charlie's favorite passage of Scripture, but I'm not going to get into this one. Amen. <laughs> I was teaching on this over in London, and I spent about, I don't know, 30 minutes on Hebrews chapter 7, and people were just looking at me and... I said, are you getting this? And Charlie goes, no. <laughs> so um, he was just being honest, amen. He was listening. So I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but nonetheless, it is a tremendous, tremendous... This is, this is amazing how the Lord changed the priesthood by this prophecy that was made to David in Psalms chapter uh, 110 verse 5 that there was coming a new priest after the order of Melchizedek and Hebrews chapter 7 goes into great explanation about this. Melchizedek it never listed his parents and it never talked about his uh, descendants and so in a symbolic sense Melchizedek was never born because it didn't talk about his lineage. He never had any children and so in type and shadow he is an unchangeable priesthood. He didn't start, he didn't end, and he symbolized Jesus. And so that's what Hebrews chapter 7 is talking about. Let me go down to um, verse 15. This is Hebrews seven fifteen. It says, And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalms 
chapter 110, verse 5. And look at this in verse uh, 18. You know, if you have a Bible, you ought to underline this or do something and go home and study this. I, I'm not going to have time to give you all of this, but these verses right here would stand most of our religious beliefs right on their head. Look at this, Hebrews seven eighteen. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Radical statements. The point that he's making is that under the Old Testament law, you had to be a Levite to be a priest. Jesus wasn't a Levite, so, and he verifies that there was a prophecy about this, Psalms 110, verse 5, that there was coming a new priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you change the priesthood, then you got to change the law. This was not consistent with the Old Testament law. If you are going to accept that Jesus is your high priest, the apostle and high priest, then you cannot live under the law because Jesus wasn't a Levite. You can't keep the law. You can't be obligated to the Ten Commandments and try and keep them and thereby earn relationship with God. If you do that, you aren't under the, Le you aren't under the Melchizedek priesthood. You're under the Levitical priesthood. They're opposites. They don't mix. And so the conclusion is there is verily a disannulling. Did you know that when you annul something, it means that you just void it? It's it, the, a word that is a syn, syn, uh, synonym is abolish. For instance, if you get married and then you have it annulled, it's like you never were married. The law doesn't even recognize that it ever happened. It's canceled. It's abolished. It's nullified. And the word annul is a strong word. And when you put disannul on the front, you know all that is, it's like a superlative. If annulling something means to void, to cancel, to abolish, disannul just means to obliterate, totally destroy. It's wiped out. It's gone. It's over. It's done. It is a super strong word. You know, for time's sake, I'm not going to turn over there, but in Galatians chapter 3, it's talking about that there was a covenant of faith that was made with Abraham 430 years before the law came through Moses. And the first covenant of faith cannot be disannulled by the covenant of law. That's what it says in Galatians chapter 3. I believe it's around verse 15. It cannot be disannulled. The Old Testament law didn't disannul the covenant of faith and grace. It was made to Abraham. But when Jesus became Abraham's seed, Genesis, I mean Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 says that this promise was made to Abraham and his seed. Not seeds as of many, but as to one seed and that is Christ and the law. This must be verse 17, Galatians 3, 17 says, And I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that first covenant. That first covenant was based on grace. It wasn't based on Abraham's performance. 
Oh man, there's so much I'd love to say. I feel like the writer of Hebrews that there's much I'd like to say, but it's hard to be uttered seeing we're dull of hearing. And I'm not saying that in a way that's condemning, but we've been dulled by religion. What I'm saying is so simple that you have to have somebody to help you to misunderstand it. But we've had a lot of help misunderstanding it. There is so much religious bondage in us that the things I'm saying are so weird, I feel like I've got to explain it and verify it a thousand ways. It's, man, this, this is some powerful stuff. The law was 430 years after the first covenant. The first covenant took precedent and it was fulfilled when Jesus came and Jesus entered in the new covenant that totally disannulled, voided, abolished, did away with the Old Testament law. Not just a ceremonial law, but the law that was written in and graven in stones has been nullified, disannulled. Does that mean that we ignore it? No, there's still benefit from it. There was nothing wrong with the law. When he says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that nobody could ever keep that. And some of you think, well, I've kept that. <laughs> the Bible says, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it, it mentions covetousness and it says, which is idolatry. You know what covetousness is? Desiring something that you don't have. If any of you have lusted for a house, lusted for a car, lusted for a television, lusted for a DVD, a Blu-ray, somebody else's mate, anything you've ever lusted for, you've committed idolatry. You've broken the very first commandment. You may think, you may be like the rich young ruler that, oh, all of these have I kept from my youth up. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And Jesus knew this guy hadn't kept every, every law. Nobody's ever kept the law. So you know what he said? It says he beholding him loved him. He didn't say this because he was mad at him and trying to punish him. He was trying to help him. And it says he beholding him loved him. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell whatsoever you have, and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler went away grieved because he had great possessions. You know what Jesus did? He was showing him, you've broken the very first commandment that says you shall have no other gods before me. Your money, you trust in your money more than you trust in me. For you to say, oh, I've kept the Ten Commandments, most of you would sit here and fight. Man, I believe we still need to live by the Ten Commandments. If you are so passionate for the Ten Commandments, stand up and tell me what all ten of them are. I bet you you can't even list the Ten Commandments. If you believe so passionately for them, it seems like you ought to at least know what they are. There's still benefit. I still benefit. It's right to have no other gods before him, but I am not living under that. And plus, I'm not living under the curse that came if you break the law. Christ redeemed me from the curse. I still look at those things, and I haven't thrown away the Old Testament. I study it, and I read it, and I learn a lot from it. But man, I praise God that I am not under the bondage and the curse of the Old Testament law. 
I read it, but I read it in the light of New Testament reality. So again, back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. There is verily, this means truly. Every time the word verily is put there, this means he knows you're going to have trouble believing this. So he's just putting a little exclamation point here. This is true. I'm not lying to you. It's true. Amen. There is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. In verse um, 22, it talks, or let's see, yeah, verse 22, but it says, by so much was Jesus made surety of a better covenant. That covenants aren't evil, e- equal. The Old, Kev- Old Testament covenant was weak and unprofitable. It didn't make anything perfect, but the bringing in of a better covenant did. Jesus instituted a better testament, a better covenant. In chapter 8, I'm just going through this quickly. I've got to hurry up, but it says, uh, he starts talking about that we now have a high priest in verse 3 that is offering gift and sacrifices. And in verse 6 he says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. More excellent than what? More excellent than Moses. More excellent than the Old Testament law. A better testament. A better covenant. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also uh, he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Again, the whole book of Hebrews is to get you out of the Old Testament law, the Old Testament mindset of having to please God and appease God by your own goodness and holiness. The Old Testament law was based on your performance. The New Testament grace is based on faith in what Jesus did for you. The New Testament is better. It's better promises. It's a better covenant. It's better in every way. Don't go back to the old. Man, these are the points that he's trying to make. In verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. So this is Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it prophesied the end of itself. It prophesied something better was coming. And here is Jeremiah, the prophet, prophesying about the new covenant that you and I should be living under. God is extending it toward us, but most of us are still trying to relate to Him based on the old covenant. So here's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. And I already read verse 8. In verse 9 it says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's talking about the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments that were given in Exodus chapter 20. It's not according to that covenant when I led them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. In other words, the Old Testament covenant was voided not by God but by us. None of us kept it. We broke it. And so instead of the blessing of the Old Testament law coming on us, the only thing that we deserved was the curse. And so God brought in a new covenant that wouldn't have a curse associated with it. And that's good. So in verse 10 it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. 
And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. This is just an old English way of saying that you aren't going to have to learn about God intellectually. It's going to be a revelation to your heart. God is going to reveal it directly. Everyone who is truly born again will know God for themselves. You won't have to take my word for it. God will come live on the inside of you and reveal these things. You'll know it on a heart level. It's a revelation that comes directly to you, not something you just learn. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse 12 he says, For I will be merciful... Is that where I quit reading? Yep. In verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's the new covenant. That God has totally paid for your sins... He's merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities He will remember no more. Not only up until the time you got born again, but God dealt with all of your sins. Even the ones that you haven't committed yet have already been forgiven. He's merciful to you and He is not holding your sins against you. When you come before the Lord saying, Oh God, I failed you so badly. Oh God, how could you love me? Don't look at me in that tone of voice as if you've never done this. You know, I remember a time in Vietnam where I had just gotten turned on to the Lord. I was so passionate. I made a promise. I'd witnessed to every person I ever saw, which can't happen. But that's how passionate I was. I wanted to witness to every person. And I tried. And I got in a lot of trouble. And, but I failed. And I got so disappointed with myself. I remember saying, God... How could you love me? I don't love me. I didn't... And I just said, God, I know you're going to put me on a shelf. You've got to move past me because I'm so vile and I can't keep my commitments. And I just was feeling so ungodly like, Oh, God, how could you ever love me? You know what that was? That was Old Testament law mentality, feeling like I had to earn the things of God. I wasn't approaching into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. I thought it had to be by me doing everything right. And because of it, I was living under guilt and condemnation. I thought God was holding my failures against me. And if you don't have absolute, total boldness... I mean, if you were approaching into the Holy of Holies and if an angel, if Michael stood in your way and challenged you and if you didn't have, I mean, absolute boldness to say, I command you in the name of Jesus to get out of my way, then you don't understand what Jesus has done for you. What you've got is greater than what uh, Michael the archangel had. You've got more authority and power. There is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You've been forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. And if you go out tomorrow and blow it big time, you still can enter right into the Holy of Holies and obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Boy, that's good news. That's nearly too good to be true news. That sounds like the gospel. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. There's no more memory. God's not bringing your sins up. There are some of you that are going back and oh, I had this happen to me when I was younger and I failed. And you are here 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years later still suffering and bearing about the scars of all that have happened because you've never got out of the flesh 
and into the Spirit where you've been sanctified and perfected forever. You aren't worshiping God in spirit and in truth. You're still out there in the outer court. You know this illustration I gave of the tabernacle last night that showed the outer court and then the holy place and then the holy of holies? You remember that? Have you got that, Carol? Can you put that up? You know, this is not only symbolic of entering into the Holy of Holies where God dwells, but you could use this as an illustration of spirit, soul, and body. The outer court is like our physical body. It's the part that you see. Then there's the inner part, the holy place. That would be comparable to our soul. And then the innermost part is the spirit realm. The spirit is the part that is changed. The Spirit is where God dwells. The Spirit is perfect, sanctified, and perfected forever. But very few of us get into the Spirit. We stay out in the outer court, either in the total physical realm or at the very best in the soulish realm, in our emotions, how we feel. And very few people live in the Spirit and in the spiritual part of them who they are. Well, that's a perfect illustration of spirit, soul, and body as well as it is how to enter into the presence of God. But see, God is now totally forgiven you. Your spirit is sanctified and cleansed. And if you're going around feeling unworthy because you've sinned and done all of these things, then you are in the soulish, physical, natural realm. You haven't entered into the Holy of Holies. You aren't in the spirit. Because He said He'll be merciful to our unrighteousness, our sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. And look at this in verse 13. In that He saith a new covenant... He hath made the first old. That's what we started with over here in chapter 10, verse 20, that we are entering by a new and living way. The very fact that He said that there is a new way, that makes the old way old. And then it goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. If you look this word up in the Greek, it means it is ready to be obliterated, demolished, just as if it had never happened. Brothers and sisters, we are not supposed to be living under the old covenant mentality of I've got to do this and then God will do this. I've got to please God and I've got to live holy before God will move in my life. If you are thinking that way, you are under the old covenant law that I have used... I don't even know how many scriptures, at least 50 probably today, showing you that the old covenant was temporary. Galatians chapter 3 says this, that we were shut up under the law. It was only temporary until faith should come. But once that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. There are just so many scriptures that go along with this. I've used dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures to say that this Old Testament law mentality to where you've got to be holy for God to move in your life was an Old Covenant mindset. And yes, there's a lot of scriptures that talk about it under the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, we have a better testament, a better promise, better promises. The Old Covenant has been disannulled. we got a different priesthood, so... We've got to have a different command. We've got a new covenant, a new way of relating. We enter now into the very presence of God boldly by the blood of Jesus through His veil because we have a new priest. We don't have an Old Testament priest that had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. We've got a sinless, perfect priest who didn't have to offer sacrifice for himself. 
He offered Himself for us and He now lives to make intercession for us. We can have boldness to enter right into the very presence of God. Sin has been obliterated. God's not mad at you. He's not even in a bad mood. God loves you. God has totally wiped away every failing, every rotten thing, everything that you hate about yourself. Some of you don't like the way you look. We, just, we live in a society that is marketing things and presenting these perfect people and trying to make you feel guilty if you don't look like them and you got to go get a Botox injection and get your lips puffed out and get this taken out and this punched in. and It's just stupid. It's just stupid. And many of you are upset and don't like yourself. But you know what? God isn't like that. God sees you in the Spirit and He sees you His creation. You're perfect. He loves you. He's not displeased at you. Some of you are mean and ornery. Some of you are gripers and complainers. But you know what? God has forgiven you and cleansed you and He sees you in the Spirit and He sees you perfect. He loves you. God carries your picture in His wallet. He's got an 8 by 10 of you on His mantle in heaven. God's pleased with you and you aren't pleased with yourself because you're under a wrong covenant. You're under a covenant that made the knowledge of sin come alive. Romans chapter 3 verse 19. By the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law is to give you knowledge of sin, to point out your failures and to condemn you. We read that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, the ministration of condemnation. That's what the law was all about, was about condemning you. And you wonder why you're condemned. You wonder why you have a consciousness of sin, which Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2 says that if you could understand the atonement of Jesus, you would have no more conscience of sin. No more sin consciousness. Why aren't we living in that? Because the law the traditions and doctrines of men. The law at one time served a useful purpose to bring the self-righteous Jew to his knees and prepare him for a Savior. But the law was never intended for the Gentiles in the first place. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says, We know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, implying that not everybody's under the law. God never intended for the Gentile church to know all of the do's and don'ts and laws and regulations that we've been exposed to. Religion put us under that. There was a time under the old covenant where it served a purpose to shut us up unto faith, but uh, we shouldn't have ever been under it. Religion has put us under this because we haven't understood the book of Hebrews. We haven't understood that we now have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way with a new priesthood. Those are foreign concepts to the average Christian. And we are still approaching under the Old Testament time that every time we sin, God's upset. He's still remembering our sins and holding them against us. And we've got to bow and scrape and come in, Oh God, I'm so sorry. You just come one time and receive salvation and after that you get sanctified and perfected forever. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 10 and 14. And God is a spirit and He's looking at you in the spirit and He sees you perfect and pure and God's not upset with you. 
God loves you. He loves you more than he loved Moses, Elijah. What you have is greater than what those people had. The only difference is we don't know what we have. Again, some of you don't love yourself. It's because you're looking on the outward appearance. But on the inside, you are brand new. You're a brand new person. You have rights and privileges with God that would put a shout in a statue. It would make a corpse rejoice. If a corpse could understand what I'm saying, they'd smile. And yet there's some of you that are depressed. You cannot be depressed thinking on what I've been talking about today. If you're depressed... If you're depressed, it's because you're thinking on depressing things. You aren't thinking about what Jesus has done for you. I'm telling you, this would change your life if we could understand this. And I hadn't even got to the heart of it yet. This is all the introductory stuff. But this would change your life if we could get out of the old covenant and recognize that we have a new and living way to approach unto God. Man, is that awesome or what? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You know, let me just pray for us because I know that this is hard on our religion. I, I was raised in religion. I could spend another hour telling you about the struggle I went through to get to where I could say what I'm saying today. I'm not going to do it. But I tell you what, it was, it was harder than most of you could ever imagine. There's not a person in here, I, I, I guess it's possible, but I would doubt that there's a person in here that was more legalistic and condemning than what I was. I guess it's possible, but I doubt it. This has not come easily. I just had to bow my knee to the Word of God and say, God, this is not what I've been taught. This is not what I've seen. I've never heard anybody else preach it, but it's what your Word says. And I just had to bow my knee and go with it. And I tell you, it set me free, and I've seen it set a lot of other people free. And so what I want to do is I want to just pray for you real quickly. There's a scripture in Luke 24, 45, where Jesus was talking to the disciples about these same things and using the Old Testament scriptures to reveal himself unto him. And they said, didn't our heart burn within us while he talked with us? There's some of you today that like your heart is burning. You can feel the potential joy and victory that this could make and yet your mind is just like tilt and struggling to understand it. And it says in Luke 24, 45, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And that's what I want to pray for us. I believe that there can be a revelation. You can get this by your heart, even before your head understands it. Before you get all of your questions answered, I believe that you can receive this on a heart level. God will open up your understanding. So let me just pray for you and ask God to give us revelation of this. Father, we thank you for these truths. Thank you for writing these things down. Father, thank you for revealing these things to us. And Father, we just thank you and we pray against the traditions and doctrines of man that make the word of none effect. Father, we make the decision in Romans 3, 4 to let God be true and every man a liar. To let God be true and every doc doctrine and dogma and creed a liar. Father, we exalt your word 
above what our mother and father, our aunts, our uncle, anybody else has ever said. Father, we're going to let you be true and every man a liar. Not that we dishonor other people, but we are going to honor you more. Father, we just make that decision. And I pray this scripture in Luke 24, 45, that Jesus prayed over his disciples. Father, I pray that through the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would just open up our hearts, our understanding, that we might understand the scriptures. Holy Spirit, the Bible says that the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, when He has come, will teach you all things and lead you into all truth and bring to your remembrance all things whatsoever I have said unto you. Father, I believe that right now the Holy Spirit is here, opening up our hearts and giving us an understanding that we might understand the Scripture. Father, I pray that people would embrace this with their hearts that they would receive it first of all on a heart level and then let your Holy Spirit teach them and instruct their mind and answer their questions. But Father, I pray that people would open up and receive this truth on a heart level, that you have brought a new way, that the veil has been torn, that it's now the blood of Jesus and not our performance, that we are no longer under the law trying to live up to a standard, but that we receive complete intimacy with God based on what Jesus did for us, independent of us. Father, I pray that that become revelation to every single person in here. And Father, we agree and we receive it. We thank you. And I believe that you have lit a fire, just like these disciples that said, didn't our heart burn within us while he spoke to us and expounded the scripture? Father, I believe that your word has burned on the inside of people here today, that you've lit a fire that'll never go out, that it'll burn until it does away with our wrong thinking and wrong attitudes, our guilt, our condemnation, our sin consciousness. I believe that this fire will burn up everything that's not gold, silver, and precious stones. Anything that's wood, hay, and stubble, I thank you that this fire just burns it out. And that, Father, all that's left is us standing here totally on what Jesus did for us and not what we do for you. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we believe and we agree and we receive that and thank you that a great thing has begun here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus.